this. Um, we've got a, uh, a group today that you'll see. Uh, you know, we've got Greg uh, Valier from uh, AGF. He was supposed to be our, our co-keynote in Miami uh, in January, one of our last large events. But we've got you today. They're probably very timely as well. Um, thanks to our friends at, at UBS, uh, Tom McLaughlin, who heads up uh, Fixed Income for Americas. Uh, and is uh, also um, t- tends to focus on the political side. Uh, we'll talk about the markets, and then uh, Salman Baig from our friends at Unigestion, sitting in Geneva, but American. Uh, they probably calling him. He's like, "What the hell's going on over there?" So uh, he'll tell us what the hell's going on in the in the markets uh, in a wider sense. And then Candace, I don't see Candace on just yet. Um, but as many of you know, um, you know, sort of looks at assets, uh, and has, has her own certain point of view and we'll, we'll welcome her, her perspective today. And then, then we'll open it up, uh, 361 style and have a round table town hall and, uh, and figure out, you know, how we can all help each other reposition, uh, accordingly. So for some, some people who are new to, uh, 361, let me just, uh, review quickly where we've been and where we're going. So you can see on this, this screen, we've got uh, a number of events. We call them deep dives, um, on subjects that are of interest. And you'll see on the right side, more brewing. And I think as this cycle keeps continuing, and it's really thanks to all of you, many of you, um, who are involved, you know, if you have a subject, um, then uh, we bubble it up and, and grab a group and put it together and, and voila, we have a, you know these panels. So uh, next up is uh, ag. Next Tuesday, esports and gaming. Thursday, water education. Uh, our global conference, legal tech, future of education, future of work, which is that's going to be an interesting one. That's where we're going to invite spouses and children of of any age, frankly. Um, you know, generation alpha. I've got a, a Z and an, two Z's and an alpha in my house. And, uh, and then a virus update. And, uh, I'll come back to these people, but, uh, I'll start it off. People were talking about working on the hill. So I worked on the hill. I was involved in politics at one point, uh, for, for Bob Dole. And it seems like the world needs a good Bob Dole, uh, today, but, um, and my congressman was, was Kasich. When Kasich knew that I was working for Dole, he would just sort of come up there all the time pretending to see me, but he was really seeing uh, Bob Dole. And there's, uh, there's another guy, Alan Simpson, who just kept, would tell jokes and you'd, yeah. you'd, it was a very collegial place at the point, at that time. Uh, all said, you know, this is our path is, is, uh, working with Anderson. That's the one firm and 361 firm abroad having a global you know, sort of mindset and collaborating and then the family office and then the alumni networking and then it all comes together. And uh, many of you know this. So, and then we've been around the world. Uh, we look at this as a very interconnected system with fund managers helping us show us deal flow and information flow. And we group ourselves by several industries, different interests, you know, a big interest, uh, those areas in the pink, and purple, uh, impact next gen philanthropy, 
because um, we say families are looking for these seven things, you know, capital, but also talent, you know, great networks, the crystal ball. It's not all about money, so some good experiences, and then their legacy, and again, sports, water coming up, uh, philanthropy and fintech that we did before. So very excited to turn this, turn it over to uh, the panel uh, to talk about um, sort of where we where we think we are, um, and you'll tell us. Um, and um, Greg, I'm going to turn it over to you and um, and thank everybody for for coming and look forward to a great discussion. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Really happy to be with you. I have to begin by telling you that Bob Dole was a neighbor of mine. Uh, we live in the same building. Uh, he's probably mid-90s now. He's in a wheelchair. And he has a just a fabulous wife. If you know uh, Elizabeth Dole, she is really quite a pistol. Uh, tremendous energy. Lovely, lovely woman there. Yeah, I've always thought Bob Dole was one of the great American heroes. What he gave to his country. I mean, as you know, Mark, half of his upper right-hand part of his body got blown off in World War II. Yep. He's he's a good, strong left. Yep. A wonderful, wonderful guy and a very funny guy as well. Well, let me just begin with a quick overview of where things stand. Uh, I think the big story today will be in Pennsylvania. Uh, by the end of the day, I think that the numbers will show uh, Joe Biden ahead. Uh, the Biden people are saying they could be ahead by 100,000 votes by the end of the day. I think that's a little rich. I think that's an exaggeration, but I wouldn't be shocked if they were ahead by 40 or 50,000 votes by the end of the day, uh, Pennsylvania with 20 electoral votes is obviously enormous if Biden could uh, pull that off. Uh, otherwise, he does have other paths. Uh, his lead has narrowed a bit in Arizona and Nevada. Uh, I, I think Georgia is out of reach, although Georgia's gotten close in the last 24 hours. I think North Carolina is out of reach as well. But I, I would have to say that uh, Joe Biden has more paths to 270 than Donald Trump. Donald Trump only has one path, and that would probably require him uh, to win in Pennsylvania. So the odds, in my opinion, are probably 70-30, maybe even 80-20, that uh, Joe Biden gets elected uh, president. Uh, we're not there yet, and I think one thing the markets will have to be concerned about is the possibility of a protracted litigation. Uh, if the president and his advisors uh, feel that they could claim fraud or other irregularities, they might, uh, they might litigate for quite some time, maybe even going all the way to the Supreme Court. I always point out that in the year 2000, when we sort of saw this movie before, it took the Supreme Court until December 12th to rule that uh, George W. Bush beat Al Gore. So this could take a while. And I also worry that during a protracted period of uncertainty, we could see some unrest. There was a lot last night. Uh, the left uh, in New York City and in Portland, uh, the right at certain polling uh, voter counting places where uh, they gathered big crowds to chant against people uh, saying they should either count the votes or not. It varies depending on the location. But I do worry about unrest persisting, and I do worry about uncertainty for the financial markets if this drags on. The markets, however, got a tremendous story, in my opinion, and that's the congressional result. 
Uh, Democrats that I talked to yesterday are quite disappointed in their performance, both in the Senate and House races. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had expected to gain maybe a dozen seats in the House, but they lost several seats, maybe 10 or so seats in the House. A lot of veteran uh, Democrats got defeated. And in the Senate, where the Democrats had high hopes to uh, oust Mitch McConnell, his majority leader, the Republicans have hung on. Uh, they may only have a, a loss of a couple of seats. Uh, I think you know, it's possible a Georgia runoff in early January could affect it, but I, I don't see that. I think that McConnell will be majority leader for another two years, uh, and that's a big deal for the markets uh, on a couple of fronts. Uh, number one, you know, all of the tax increases that the markets had been worrying about from Joe Biden, and he had like 10 or 11 big new tax hikes, individual, corporate, capital gains, estate, Social Security, Wall Street transaction tax, on and on and on, uh, was something that I think the markets was were concerned about. But now with Mitch McConnell in back in control of the Senate, I don't see the tax hikes. I think they're very unlikely. Another big story for the markets, of course, is the uh, outlook for a stimulus bill. I think we'll get one. McConnell said yesterday he'd like one, but I don't think he or his colleagues are too excited about much over one trillion. You know, maybe you could push them a little higher. Uh, I personally thought Nancy Pelosi should have taken the Mnuchin deal of about two trillion uh, a month or so ago, but it seemed to me like she didn't want to say yes uh, to this deal. So I think those two stories will be big for the markets. I think in my world, in the political world, I think there's going to be some real grumbling by Democrats toward Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Uh, Pelosi is 80. She says she wants another term. I think there are many in the House who really want some fresh blood. Uh, Chuck Schumer turns, turns 70 in a couple of weeks, and I think that he may face a, a big primary challenge in New York State for his Senate seat from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is very dynamic, very, very telegenic, and will be well-funded. And she might take him out. That's not out of the question. So a, a lot going on. That's that's the, the the quick overview. I'm sure we'll we'll take a deeper dive into issues uh, for a while. But my bottom line is a, a very very narrow win by Joe Biden is still the most likely scenario with a Congress that I think is a is a pretty friendly story for the markets. Maybe uh, maybe I'll jump in then and follow Greg uh, for the benefit of the. Uh... For the audience, let's see, yeah, I'm on, I'm off mute. Okay. For the benefit of uh, the audience, um, we had a conversation before we began this morning and the way Greg started reminded me of another story back in, in the older days in, in Congress where many of you recall that Ronald Reagan at one point called Tip O'Neill a demagogue. It was 1982 and they were in the middle of budget negotiations and all business in Washington stopped. In 1982, calling somebody a demagogue was beyond the pale, over the line. It was just inappropriate. So a lot has changed since then. Um, in terms of uh, following on in, in Greg's um, market view, uh, we generally agree. I think uh, based on the likely outcome, um, Biden will be obliged to focus on foreign policy, uh, national security, trade, and execute whatever policies he wants through regulatory action or executive orders. Um, the, the market really hasn't focused on that yet. I think um, we've seen a big relief rally in the equity markets. 
Um, and we've actually seen the, uh, the Treasury 10-year uh, rally a bit. What's interesting to me is the pivot that we've seen uh, between the, the, the story that was existing five, six, seven days ago and the one that is existing now. A week ago, uh, the equity markets were more or less correlated with the prospect of a, a fiscal stimulus bill, a big fiscal stimulus bill coming in on a blue wave. And every time we saw um, Trump look a little bit better in the polls, you actually saw the equity markets kind of fall back and reverse. When Biden looked like he was surging ahead and the blue wave was coming, the equity markets were, were actually rallying. And it was weird. Um, but that's I think the expectation was we just needed the fiscal stimulus. And that was the story pre-election. Post-election, or it began somewhere around 7 or 8 o'clock in New York, you saw the, the Treasury just gyrated like crazy for, for the better period of 18, uh, 18 hours or so. And it started off with expectations before the polls closed of a blue wave, and we actually saw uh, Treasury yields hit 95, I think it was, uh, on the 10-year. And then when, when basically Trump, uh, they fell back. And then Biden looked strong again, and they surged again. It went back and forth, uh, made two round trips in the space of about uh, eight hours. Um, and we hadn't seen that in a while. We hadn't actually hadn't seen that much volatility in the Treasury. So the takeaway for me during the, the election, was, the election day actually, was um, the government bond market was responding <clears throat> to the, to the uh, expectations of a big fiscal stimulus package. And then it, we wake up the following day, and all of a sudden the market is basically pivoting to the expectation that Biden's not squeaked out. And the entire story has changed again. Now the story is, and Greg's correct, the story is, well, a split Congress is actually reasonably good because we're not going to have the taxes. And McConnell did come out and, and basically say he wanted uh, to think about this during the lame duck session of Congress um, and do some stimulus maybe up to a trillion dollars. Um, so it's 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 been interesting. I think when you distill all that down, and, and that's a lot, but if you still distill it all down, it comes down to the basic premise that the market is basically going to trade for the next two or three months on the prospects of the vaccine. So if Pfizer comes out and does trials and looks like it's getting close and we see something that looks like it's going to get rolled out in March or April, that is going to be a real big boom to the equity markets. Um, so if you look at it, the pre-election, we want a big fiscal stimulus, and the only way we're going to get it is the blue wave, to what we saw yesterday, which is the relief rally, which is a divided Congress, and, and basically that's really good because we're not going to get taxes. And McConnell comes out and says we're going to get some stimulus. It it keeps coming down. You distill it constantly down to this one basic overriding fact, which is that the market is going to trade, again, on the, on the prospects of a vaccine and to release the animal spirits in the market when we're all anxious about the shutdowns. And once we can begin to interact again, personally, I think it's a big boom for the market. Do you want to take it from here, Salman? Yeah. So uh, I think I'm unmuted. Yeah. So, so our, our views are, I think uh, maybe a bit boring in that we're uh, sort of agree with uh, what's been said so far. So yeah, we're similarly, our base case is, yeah, Biden will win the presidency. Maybe we'll know today. Maybe we'll know uh, tomorrow. But uh, we think we'll have some, some resolution there. And that, indeed, the Senate looks like it's, it's leaning, leaning Republican, although we might not know for sure until January, right, given given the, the potential, or at least one runoff in Georgia, maybe two. Um, and then, so for us, uh, in terms of policy implications, again, I think similar to, to um, what other folks are saying, 
Um, you know, we think uh, there could be some sort of release stimulus or some minor stimulus uh, during the limb session, but clearly the, you know, two, two trillion uh, or more stimulus that was expected is, is, is off the table unless, you know, the COVID situation gets worse and we go back to, uh, to lockdowns. Um, you know, similarly agree that, you know, the market's uh, reacting pretty positively now to the fact that taxes rolling back are also seem to be off the table. Um, it looks like healthcare reform, any sort of major healthcare reform is also off the table. No grand uh, Green New Deal. Uh, that's also off the table. Uh, the one uh, thing we are looking at is, you know, the potential for infrastructure spending. Um, that's been a, you know, potential bipartisan uh, 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 policy that seems to have stalled and, you know, Biden's been talking about that. So there could be some, some spending there. Um, but overall, you know, on the domestic policy front, we're seeing not, not huge changes. And I think that's, you know, the market's happy with that. Um, on the foreign policy side, this is where, you know, we think it's all, you know, good news for markets, right? Um, likely lower volatility, less policy by tweet, less headline risk, uh, especially around U.S. China. Um, you know, obviously, uh, tensions between the U.S. and China are not great. Um, you know, does Biden himself is, I don't think, is particularly uh, uh, easy on China. I think the, the Democrats as well. Uh, this is where there does seem to be some 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 bipartisan agreement on, on being tough on China. It just won't be front page headlines, a lot of in your face. It'll be more, we think, um, you know, typical channels, uh, meetings, and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens from there. Um, we're also expecting trade policy to normalize, right? So outside of China, um, with the European Union, with Mexico, with Canada, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we all, you know, we think that's, that's basically good for, for global growth. Um, the one, you know, um, potential risk is with Russia. Um, you know, uh, uh, if we see, um, you know, the U.S. sort of taking back its place within NATO, especially uh, given tensions with Russia and other NATO powers, there, there could be some um, some issues there. Um, so that's sort of how we're seeing it in terms of policy. Uh, if I then go to, you know, sort of uh, what that means for financial markets, um, you know, I, I think we've talked a little bit about equities already, um, you know, basically agree that, you know, U.S. equities in particular look likely to, to perform well for uh, uh, from our perspective, the key the key dynamic has been um, is rather that the uh, a sort of rotation or potential reflationary sort of environment we could have imagined under sort of a, a blue wave type scenario um, that's that's now gone right. Um, so what we expect is you know uh, the laggards uh, that we've seen so value stocks, small caps, etc. We still expect them to, to lag the rest of the broader market. We still think it's going to be a good environment for, um, your large cap firms, for tech especially, especially while, um, coronavirus is still an issue. Um, at the same time, if we, you know, then sort of shift markets, uh, you know, it relieves some of the, the, the lack of a blue wave, right? The lack of massive stimulation, release some upward pressure on yields. Um, and as well as, as on the dollar, right? So the fading uncertainty, you're seeing it today, especially against the currencies, um, the dollar is losing a lot of ground. And so that, um, will benefit in particular EM assets. So we think, um, that's one place where, um, you could see, uh, a significant boost from one, you know, the renormalization of trade point, uh, uh, I was making earlier. To the lower dollar, uh, as, an, as you know, uncertainty subsides. Uh, we've seen the dollar being bid as sort of a, 
uh, a safe haven uh, in the last uh, last few days. And then the third point really is, you know, especially when it comes to Asian markets, the COVID situation much better there, especially in China. And so um, that to us seems like a pretty, you know, good environment for for emerging market assets. So equities, emerging market debt, uh, currencies, uh, so on. And again, the exception could be Russian assets, the ruble. Um, and just to sort of close maybe on, on commodities, um, you know, we think that, you know, at the end of the day, the Biden presidency is not great for oil, um, but certainly over the um, short to medium term, we think it's really going to be driven by um, global demand and what's going on with the virus, less so with Biden's policies. Um, the one other, I think, interesting point to make is about gold, given, um, you know, over the last year, we've seen gold be bid up quite strongly. Um, we think some of that support will now fade. There's always There was always a risk of positioning in gold becoming extreme and so on, but it did benefit from some good fundamental supports. But some of those supports we, we um, could uh, uh, see fading. Um, certainly, the you know, the less, in, less fiscal impulse, less inflationary pressure, um, and also lower uncertainty um, could all, you know, uh, uh, provide headwinds to, to gold. So that's, that's, uh, another place where we're looking for, um, you know, some, some, some potential opportunities. Um, so that's, that's sort of the, you know, cross asset, multi-asset view as, as we're seeing it. So I'll, I'll maybe stop there. Okay, great. Thank, thanks everyone. I, uh, I would turn it over to Candace, but I don't see her unless, um, She's on or off, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause just for a second. But otherwise, I wanted to kick off uh, with a few questions and then turn it over to everybody. Um, you know, good, good points on the global fronts. I hear you on that, the gyrations, Tom. Um, I wasn't following the 10-year during those 8 or 18 hours. Um, but, Greg, as you, as you think of uh, the, the, what, what – I guess two questions. What – uh, of this election su- surprised you the most other than the experts not being so expert um, uh, with the polling and um, and maybe something that you're that you, you some data point or something you've been looking at that you think the, the media hasn't been. Sure. Well, I, like a lot of people, I have made a solemn vow to never again get bamboozled by poll takers. Uh, I, as, as, as bad as they were in, uh, 2016, they were even worse this time. I mean, just appallingly bad polls. So, uh, I think that industry has to go through a period of, uh, introspection, self-reflection to see what's that, what the hell is wrong with their methodology? I mean, there's something, you know, maybe it's just as simple as people saying one thing to a poll taker and doing something else when they get into the voting booth. But that was, that was shocking. I had been told in the last several months that their methodology was really improved, that they really had it all nailed down. This would be, you know, a very accurate, and they were terrible. So that was one surprise. I guess another surprise is the transformation of South Florida into a pretty conservative bastion. Uh, they voted overwhelmingly for Trump and the Republicans. And I think the Hispanic people in South Florida uh, get real nervous when you talk about socialism. I mean, if you came out of Venezuela or have friends who came out of Venezuela, you know what a nightmare 
that that is. So I think that while some states are in play that weren't in play, I, I think the big state story would clearly be uh, in Florida, where Hispanic voters have, I think, begun to reject the Democrats. So those are a couple of things that uh, surprised me a bit on Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Right. And maybe I'll jump in uh, to follow what Greg was saying. I, I think in terms of an untold story, or at least a limited told story, is the fact that the repositioning of both political parties as protectionist parties, and while it's not universal across the Republican Party, I think one of the things that Trump has done is he's taken a 75-year history of the Republicans being the free party of free trade and turned it into a something that's closer, anyway, to where the Democrats have historically been. And so Solomon was talking about trade, and I, I agree completely that the normalization of trade with our traditional allies will probably follow. But one of the things that struck me during the whole Democratic debates and then into the the, um, the, the general election was the fact that there's a certain unanimity uh, in the United States about some a, a more taking more adversarial posture towards China. Uh, and there isn't a whole lot that uh, Biden, even though he's a globalist at heart, is going to be able to do in order to basically, I think, resurrect TPP or some other type of global trade multilateral. I think that's over. And, and to some degree, we're, we're moving into an era of a certain degree of protectionism. The fact that we'll lower no tweets and we'll have more of a traditional foreign policy will certainly help. Um, but I think the uh, I've had colleagues in Asia say, well, if Biden wins, does this mean that we're going to basically kind of revisit this whole, you know, a trans-Pacific partnership, et cetera? And no, the answer, I think, is absolutely not personal. I, I fully agree, Tom. Yeah, I, so I'll, I'll sort of hop in on, on this point. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that um, the, especially when it comes to China, um, both the left and the right have uh, you know significant major distrust um, uh, of uh, you know how how the you know the Chinese government and Chinese industries interact with each other and how those industries then interact with uh, American companies. And I don't I don't see that. I don't see that fading. Um, and, uh, yeah, indeed, you know, I, I think you sort of, you saw this during, uh, uh, um, the, the Democratic primaries that, you know, having this tough stance is, is, um, certainly, uh, I think rewarded on, on the left. And, and to your point, now it also is, seems to be rewarded on the right. So I think the, the main, the main, you know, positive coming out of it though is just that, yeah, the uncertainty around it is, is I think, often what markets have to deal with. And if it's, you know, pretty clear that, okay, you know, we're, we're not, we're not doing TPP or whatever, the market adjusts to that and, and can move on. Um, and so that's, that's right. You know, I can see, uh, sort of a positive support for, 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 you know, uh, uh, as the same before emerging market assets. Um, the, in terms of the, um, you know, not, not necessarily well covered, Stories. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, the other one is, I've seen some of it, but I, I think and we saw some of it in 2018 too, but the, the realignment of, um, you know, the, the, what seems to be the democratic constituency now into much more of the suburbs, right? So before, you know, by and large, Democrats were focused, uh, within urban areas and to an extent, some rural areas, um, but that has now shifted quite dramatically, right? Um, and when you saw Mitch McConnell saying, you know, we've got to make these efforts with, with suburban voters, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, part of that is, is, uh, demographics of, you know, as some people move into suburbia from, from more urban areas, but then also, um, 
you know, some, some aversion to, you know, sort of Trump's actions and, and words and so on. And so it'll be interesting, I think, in, you know, assuming Biden becomes uh, president uh, in, in four years, who, who the Republicans will run and if they'll be able to sort of capture back that sort of suburban block that um, had been so supportive before. Well, one other question. Go ahead, Greg. I was just going to say, I think there's going to be a huge fight in the Republican Party between the Trump wing and, you know, the more pragmatic Republicans like Mike Pence or especially Nikki Haley. I don't think we've heard the end of of, uh, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. But then there's going to be a more Reaganite group headed by Tom Cotton. And I'm told that uh, Donald Trump himself uh, has talked privately about trying to get either Ivanka or Donald Trump Jr. on the ticket in 2024. I'm not sure if that'll go over too well, but there will be a fundamental split in the party, uh, and it could take a while for that to to iron out. Well, that was my third question, um, which you sort of touched on it, Tom, is the future of the the Republican Party in a loss like this. Um, But let's, uh, let me ask this, uh, just one more question, I'll turn it over to the crowd, and I want to come back to what what's on the, the screen is that I, I had a chapter uh, in Leiden. If, if no one knows, Leiden is where the pilgrims went. Um, uh, and then they left because they wanted to, to have their religious freedom. And then they left because it was too free. Um, good, the good old Dutch. Um, and, but the, and when Clinton won in 92, I was studying uh, at law school during my semester abroad and they knew more about the U S election than we did. Uh, as a broadly speaking, or maybe it was that town hall. I'm just curious for the, for what Sam Salmon, um, you know, you're sitting in Geneva and I want to ask some others how the world sees this. My team was saying it sounded like this was a world election, not a U.S. election. Um, and I, and back in, in 2000, it was the, uh, the hanging Chad when I was living in Russia. You know, our, we, we, we lost so much credibility during that time. Uh, but, how do, how do we how do how do how does the international community you know you said you talked about China and how we see that but how are they seeing us if anybody wants to speak to that I would start with you Song. Yeah, so um, yeah, I mean it's it's no surprise that the U.S. elections are you know closely followed by just about everybody uh, uh, in you know everybody in the world I guess. Um, you know, uh, the results, whoever is president has obviously like significant impacts for, for the entire world. And yeah, like, you know, certainly here in Geneva, there's been a lot of attention, a lot of focus, even before, you know, the last couple of days. Um, the, the thing I'll say in terms of, you know, there's what people think about Trump and so on, which generally, I mean, probably shouldn't be that surprising is not so great. Um, the the interesting thing that I find is um, they are amazed by our system of voting that one like the electoral college is is a weird thing uh, you know for especially in coming from Switzerland it's actually very interesting where here it's it really is a democracy I mean there's uh, you know you do have um, cantons which are the equivalent of states that have their authority but you know there's uh, it's a sort of technocratic government and, uh, you know, they've got a very high, uh, uh, um, voting rate. Uh, part of that is, you know, levels of education are broadly, 
uh, uh, pretty good here. And so what they are sort of amazed at is, yeah, the, the system of voting, the complexity, the, um, and the difficulty. Like I talked to people, they're like, how long do people vote? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it could be like half an hour up to a couple of hours. And that is just flabbergasting. Um, also the fact that, you know, voting is generally speaking a national holiday in most countries. And so people have off or it occurs on weekends. Um, and so that's, that's, I think, um, you know, it, it, sometimes people get sort of lost in the traffic, but when talking to some of my, some of my colleagues, they're amazed at how frankly somewhat backwards the U.S. is on, in on this. Um, they seem to have a much simpler problem. And I, I, I don't know the details. I've not, I've never voted in Switzerland. Uh, I can't vote in Switzerland. Um, but, uh, uh, there seems to be, a, a quite a divide when, when comparing it to some of the other, like, developed world peers, I'd say. And I, as someone who works for a Canadian company, my parent is in Toronto, uh, I get a lot of questions that, about things that, Canadians don't really understand about us, including the Electoral College. It takes a while to explain it. Uh, and it, it, it's, I thought for a while on Tuesday night, we'd have still another election in which the popular vote winner did not win the presidency, but that, that may not happen now. So yeah, there are a lot of things that, that foreigners find uh, unique about the U.S., but you know, I, I think one of Biden's first objectives, it, it, assuming he wins right after inauguration, is to pick up the phone and call Merkel and Boris Johnson and Macron and Trudeau, maybe even Xi, maybe even Putin. Uh, I, th- I think that it would be incumbent upon Biden in the first couple of days to tell all of the world leaders that we uh, plan on more predictable, more stable relationships. So let me, there have been some questions in the, in the chat. Um, I'm just looking at those. Uh, Scott, you had two and Pedro and Joe. Um, oh, so Joe's asking if, if he thinks that the projected election and legal battles might cost us our AAA rating. I'm not sure it's those things, but, but, but maybe you could speak to, you know, what, what Stephen Burke was showing us the size of our deficits, uh, which brings on existential questions, uh, about MMT and everything else, but, uh, anyone want to sort of, it's, it's sort of a, well, uh, a question there. Yeah, I'll take a shot at it, I guess. Um, the, the size of the deficit was going up regardless of who's going to get elected. Um, I think we've got 123 billion in supply coming next week on the refunding, which will set an all time record, uh, in terms of the re- volume of, uh, treasury refundings that have to occur. It's going to be in the threes, the, uh, the 10-year note and then the bond. Um, so it's all across the curve. Um, and that prospect is not going to go away. When it's, it's going to be lower, I think, than it would have been had we had a blue wave, uh, certainly. Uh, but looking over the next two or three years, the size of the debt is going to increase, which would suggest that two things. One, um, you're probably going to see the curve steepen, and you'll probably um, end up seeing the uh, all across the curve, uh, the 10 and the 30 is going to continue to after after a period of respite is probably going to increase over the course of the next um, three to six months, just on the basic of, of these fundamental factors. Um, in terms of the of the rating, I, I have a I have a, a I, I would readily admit a somewhat simplistic view of this, which is um, 
it's not going to make that much of a difference, honestly, uh, until such time as the U.S. dollar is no longer the reserve currency of the planet. Uh, you can't extricate um, the importance of the dollar as a reserve currency from questions of the deficit and the degree to which at what point does the size of the deficit begin to crowd out economic growth. Um, you can run this deficit higher and longer for probably longer than anybody thinks, provided that we actually have the dollar. Now, if, if we have a situation where China lets the yuan float freely, which I don't think they want to do, although a uh, former head of the Chinese central bank basically came out about three weeks ago and suggested that happened. He would not have done that unless the Chinese leadership wanted to float that idea a little bit. Uh, but I think it's a ways off. Um, so it's either the Chinese yuan uh, supplanting the U.S. dollar, and that I think is a generation away, or uh, some sort of a basket of currencies. Um, the euro is probably not it. It's just too much political risk, and everything else is too small. So I think there is... To answer the question directly, I'm sorry I went down a rabbit hole, but I think, you know, if another rating agency drops it off the triple, it drops it, uh, the U.S. rating off the triple A, because I think we've lost one already, it probably is not that meaningful. I think look instead towards um, currency fluctuations, particularly, and also how stable the dollar is as the reserve currency. And, and you know, I would just add that in, in this city, in Washington, People are just astonishingly oblivious to the deficit. Uh, people will say to me, well, why should we really care? We've got a Fed chairman who has essentially promised to keep the funds rate close to zero for another three years. So at least in the short run, there's not a big issue with debt servicing costs. But when you talk to politicians, some of them say, well, we got to do something about the deficit. And then you ask the question, well, what would you propose? And then you get people unwilling to make any commitment for deep spending cuts or Social Security cuts or higher taxes. So I, I think that the prescriptions required to reduce the deficit are politically toxic. So I, I don't see any real effort to to go at the deficit. I think by the middle of this decade, uh, total U.S. debt will, will exceed $30 trillion. Simon Vine, I'm going to call you out for your cartoon. Um, you, want, you want to enlighten uh, everybody who can't speak Russian? <laughs> yes, hello everyone. Thank you very much for the very interesting views. Uh, I agree with them all, uh, and I think all of us agree with them all. Uh, the question is how to much make money and whether or not the market has already uh, took into account uh, the Republican Senate, basically. Uh, yes, uh, interestingly enough, in Russia, people are very much in, uh, following uh, the elections. Uh, I have no idea why, uh, but there is a joke in Russia that um, the, if people are interested in uh, finding out whom they will be blaming for their problems for the next four years. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they basically, you know, the first cartoon is about uh, this two uh, peasants who meet each other in the middle of nowhere and they ask uh, what is the status of the voting in Pennsylvania. And another cartoon is uh, about the uh, electoral map of Moscow, which region, which parts of Moscow are voting for whom. So it seems to be very well, interesting. But it, no, isn't it level of support for Donald Trump? It's either yeah, level of support. Uh, yeah, there is level of support of uh, the, uh, inside the ring. But uh, 
I think Kremlin is split between Biden and uh, and uh, Trump on this map. Mm. Uh, but overall, people prefer Trump because, however many sanctions uh, he puts on uh, Russia, uh, the Russians still believe that he is a strong man and, li- and Russians like strong men, even if they are opposing to them. So it's a kind of a little bit different culture than here. They're like looking for personalities who are strong as opposed to um, those who protect um, protect their well-being, uh, which is different here, of course. So, okay. listen, it is the same. I'm talking to the Czechs, I'm talking to the French, I'm talking to um, many people in Europe, and um, everybody is very concerned. Uh, let's get some other if it, if it could, uh, global perspectives. Uh, I'm curious, you know, Amit is in London, uh, you've got uh, uh, Vladimir is in, in Saudi Arabia. I'm in Moscow, actually, Mark. So, <laughs> okay. In, in, any perspectives on this election for you? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, what I have been hearing in, in my kind of, let's say, circle of friends and acquaintances uh, is that People are mostly concerned about the currency, I mean, the stability of U.S. dollar, which you already have discussed here a couple of minutes back. So people are afraid of uh, that the dollar might lose its, 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 like, reserve function or will be significantly devaluated against, uh, like, other currencies. Um, uh, well, other than that... Um, People are also afraid uh, since since Biden has already voiced a couple of statements or, like or pronouncements against the current Russian political regime that the sanctions right. might actually worsen. P- pretty soon, everyone's going to think I'm I'm working for Putin here. So I got two Russians uh, speaking. <laughs> let me let me broaden no, well, let me broaden sure, it, sure. Uh, out yeah. a little bit. But, but thank you, Vladimir. And and you don't have to be from. And you have anything to do with Russia? I just threw on our map. It's our CRM of our, our relationship. Yeah, yeah. But it's a little. It's a little late in the morning for the Asians. But anyone else uh, the global perspective? This is Candice Beaumont. Um, I'm happy to give a welcome. Yes. Um, from um, you know, obviously I'm in the U.S., but I'm Australian. So I have a lot of family and colleagues in Australia. Um, so I think the Australian perspective um, is somewhat divided, similar to the United States. So Australia has had problems with, you know, the Australian government-led um, the coalition that other nations joined against an investigation for China for spreading COVID throughout the world. And China retaliated against Australia and... Um, went after their um, farming, the farming industry and cancelled all the contracts for purchasing, um, you know, um, agricultural products from Australia and meat products and all kinds of things. So, um, and the Australian Prime Minister was threatened by China when he um, suggested he was going to start an investigation. And China said, if you do that, we're coming after you and you're going to regret it, we're going to retaliate and it'll be war. And... And the Australian Prime Minister said, look, this is the right thing to do. If you started this crisis and it, you deliberately spread it throughout the world, well, there's going to be a global inquisition. And 
whatever you do to retaliate, we're not gonna we're gonna do the right thing, mate, and we're gonna we're gonna investigate. Um, and then when China retaliated against Australia so viciously, the Australian people um, it created a huge backlash against China in the country, and. Um, People are very concerned about China being a global threat. They're very concerned about China building islands. They're very concerned about China taking over Hong Kong um, because Australia is a bit closer to China and Australia is very rich in natural resources. They're actually very scared of China trying to take over or take control of Australia someday. Um, so uh, because of that, uh, people in Australia really want Donald Trump to win and um, they feel that he is the only leader that has really come down tough on China. Um, they're scared that, you know, Biden, the news on him getting bribed by Chinese government, etc. They're worried that the Democrats typically have opened up everything to, to China and let them get away with things. And, um, you know, Australia before was similar to you know, other countries, they were very pro-China. They were, Chinese were coming in and buying up assets. They were welcomed by the government. Coronavirus changed that, and it changed the feelings that Australia had towards China when they retaliated so quickly and so viciously. So because of that, there's a lot of people that think, okay, Trump's got weaknesses. He might be a bit narcissistic. He might not take coronavirus seriously. But the biggest global threat to the world, and because Australia is very aligned with the United States for defense purposes, um, you know, they feel that, you know, they really would rather see a Trump administration in power because no matter what, the biggest threat right now is is China and for Australia's long-term safety, it's China as well. And, uh, you know, they really would rather have a Trump administration in power because he's, you know, he's shown himself to be, you know, he's he was against Hawaii, you know, Hawaii, the 5G network that China founded rolling out. Um, globally, he stopped other countries from using it for national security purposes. He's been tough on cracking down on Chinese spies in universities in America. Uh, so across the board, he's been, you know, like no other president in exposing these things. Candace, so, can, I, can I ask a different yeah. question as we switch gears on? You know, now, pre-election, you and I have had conversations, you know, you, you were – Frankly, rather bearish. A lot of people were, were holding their, their their powder pre-election. Have you heard? Have you seen anything? Let's assume it's Biden. It's not Trump. Uh, whether it's Pennsylvania, Nevada puts him over the top. How does this change your thinking about allocations or risk? Um, well, I think you know. I think we're we're going to wait and see what happens in the mar You know, obviously, you know if. At this at this juncture, you'd, you know, we'd, we'd obviously be concerned about, you know, increasing tax rates and people are concerned about um, certain states in the U.S. maybe not being as desirable and people leaving. So, you know, so I think from a risk management standpoint, we'd, we'd definitely, um, if, if Biden wins, we'd, you know, I think the markets will potentially take a small hit. Um, so we reduced exposure a while ago because of corona, so we wouldn't be, from our perspective, from the family office, we were not as exposed as what we were in March. Um, so we de-risked a lot of things because of corona a while ago, so any of the de-risking that anyone would do, we've already done it because of the, the um, coronavirus crisis. 
So, um, but look, I don't think it'll be, I don't think it'll be as bad as people are predicting. Um, and also it depends on if the Republicans keep the Senate, then any of the kind of socialist or outrageous things, that do, if, if, if the Democrats really do have these plans, um, you know, they won't go through the House anyway. So I think people are more concerned about the markets maybe than what is, I think, I think it'll probably be, I think, you know, it's very polarised, the, the, the two parties, people either want one side or the other. Um, but at the end of the day, look, it's a four-year term and, you know, I, I think probably because of the checks and balances they have with the House and, you know, the Senate and everything like that, and it looks like Republicans will keep control of the Senate, anything that's not anything that's really outrageous that they want to get done probably won't get done. So I don't think it'll be, um, you know, I don't think it'll be as bad as people predict with, you know, tax rates for going up and, you know, obviously there's when people want to raise the global wage, you know, you know, the, the, the national wage in a recession and, you know, companies, corporates, I think a lot of companies are looking to leave America. So I don't think it'll be good for the American economy. I think you could have a recession that could trigger a global recession. Um, but we already... Let me, let me ask position. you, your, your thesis is that we already worried that, that about the Republicans that. keep the Senate. Greg, do you, we have the runoff in Georgia. How do you, are there any... Some of the races are still not definite. What's your view on the Senate? Yeah, it, it looks to me as if the Senate uh, may wind up uh, 52 to 48 Republican. Uh, so they could lose one seat in Georgia on, in early January and still keep control of the Senate. So I, I think I think Mitch McConnell has the Senate for at least another two years. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, I might I, I, kind of worst case for McConnell is he's probably got a one seat uh, majority, but that'll be enough um, I think yep. for him to control. Um, in respect to um, you know geopolit- geopolitics, the leading candidate right now for Secretary of Defense under the Biden administration is Michelle Flournoy. I mean, it may not be her. Um, but she's former Undersecretary of Defense. And um, if you've listened to Michelle talk over the course of the last year or year and a half, um, I think that she's acknowledged that the opening that the United States gave um, to China and through from Clinton to Bush to Obama um, was perhaps too naive. And um, she's come out publicly and basically taken a, a – not a hostile st- stance towards China, but one that I think is far more realistic than what we as a nation probably exhibited over the course of the prior three administrations. And I, I would add, Tom, I, I'm not one of the believers that Elizabeth Warren lines up at Treasury. I think it's very unlikely. Uh, would, would Biden want to antagonize the markets? That would be a provocative act. More importantly, if she leaves her Massachusetts Senate seat to go to Treasury, that seat would be filled by the governor of Massachusetts, who is a Republican. So I'm not sure that they would want to lose a, a seat. So I, I think the odds-on favor to Treasury is a Fed governor, Lael Brannard. I think she's the, she's the uh, clear choice to head Treasury. Yeah, that's that's the consensus choice for sure is Brainerd and a Treasury. Um, and I, I think, you know, given the fact that Biden's going to be facing a Republican Senate. And by the way, it just in the course of this call today, this morning, I've gotten two emails from uh, friends in the Hill. Uh, I don't know, Greg, if you're getting the same thing, but uh, the House is going to be very narrow. 
Um, so Pelosi's, uh, to the extent that she's reelected as speaker next term, is dealing with a much, much more difficult situation. Yep. Because she's, um, she's got that hard progressive left that she's got to work with, but that she, and, but the, the results of this election indicate that that is not resonating outside of certain urban areas. That's so right. she's, she's going to have a, a real challenge. I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, Warren is probably not the pick. And, and even though we both know the, the Massachusetts legislature may go ahead and start playing games as they did back when Scott Brown um, was elected, um, it's uh, it's more likely um, you're right that he just passes on that. Why, why have that fight? It's just not yep. working. Exactly. Hey, Mark, it's uh, Rob Coloring. I had a quick question. Sure. Okay. Um, oh, hey, Rob. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thank you. You keep coming on with the with the sun at your back. No one you like, you like the shadowy. All right, let me let me transfer over. Okay, uh, the just a quick uh, quick question. The, um, the the comments made on the Republican side are, are interesting. However, it seems that the Dems themselves have to you know, do some soul searching as well for it to be this close, and also the loss of the um, the potential in Senate, and it's it's going to affect governors' races for the next couple of years as well. Um, uh, there's going to be some um, cowtailing a little bit to the Sanders agenda as well. Do you uh, do you all have any insight as to the uh, on the Dem side? Well, I, I just quickly say the progressives, the progressives all say the agenda was too timid. The moderates all say the agenda, the, the their constituents don't want to talk about anything uh, radical. They don't want to talk about Green New Deal or uh, big new tax hikes. Big new spending. Uh, I, I think there's a fundamental rift in the party. Uh, I think Biden clearly is in the moderate camp. Not quite sure about Kamala Harris. She's sort of a Rorschach test, in my opinion. She, everybody sees in her what they want to see. But I, I, I think there's going to have to be a, a real period of introspection to see which way the party's going. Because I think veering off to the left, I think, has not proved to be a successful uh, prescription. Yeah, I, I agree, Greg. I, I think the, uh, the there was a uh, impending civil war within the Democratic Party that had been covered up just through the election. Yeah. Yep. And regardless of how it played out, it might actually have been worse if they had uh, taken Congress. Um, but regardless, um, Biden's going to be basically dealing with two competing uh, interests. And and I, I again, the takeaway for me was that um, progressivism uh, is very popular in in kind of the urban centers of America. Um, but by and large, uh, the overperformance, if you will, of Trump among um, certain as- certain different communities just points out that it's it's not it's not quite as popular once you get out of those urban centers. And it's it's he's going to have a lot on his plate right now just dealing with his own party. Yeah. It sounds like there are two civil wars. Yeah. Yeah. Other, it, question, other questions? Bill, you you have a question? Much from message, Eric Pike. Yeah, um, if I know where that came from. <laughs> uh, to follow up a little bit on that, uh, do you? Two questions. Uh, one, do you think that the left, you know, the hard left of the Democratic Party, is essentially going to relax now for a while and bide their time until a more opportunity? you know, a, a more ripe opportunity for them, you know, to assert themselves. I, because I, I see that they were in a sense sort of a perfect foil to Trump and, you know, kind of a clear choice. 
so that's that's kind of one question. Um, the other question goes more kind of investment macro as far as, you know, kind of classic arguments of, you know, with so much stimulus, so much deficit, you know, the potential for inflation, you know, coming back, uh, you know, stronger, harder than people expect, and also impacts of the COVID uh, and, you know, why the markets continue to be bid up uh, when, you know, there are some significant problems out there. So that, that, that I, gets I, a while, but those are my two, two parts. I, I would argue that the left is going to see this period right now as a period to really try to take advantage of uh, cabinet picks, uh, the Biden agenda, uh, where they're going to move on a, on a wide range of issues. I, I think they will be. And, and, you know, Biden made some promises to them. He made some promises to Bernie. He made some promises to Elizabeth Warren, and they expect something in return. You know, maybe not Treasury, but, you know, maybe the Labor Department for Bernie. Who knows? But, no, I, I think the progressives view this as a real opportunity in the next several weeks. Yeah, I, I'll just, uh, I, I'm sorry. Sorry, uh, I'll just hit, the, if you don't mind, the, the, the macro point, only because I also have to hop off in a, in a minute for, for another call. Um just in terms of uh, inflation, because uh, I, I think this is an important question, one that comes up a lot, um, you know, we have to put the amount of stimulation in context with the contraction in, in demand, right, and, and, and spending. And so I think, you know, for now, uh, there are, you know, few signs of, you know, real pickup in inflation. Um, we, we have our own sort of, uh, you know, daily indicator, proprietary indicator, and so on. And that's, you know, that is pointing to very, very low inflation pressures. The one thing that could reverse that is if a vaccine is found, if you do have a vaccine, et cetera, and you have a renormalization of the economy, given the amount of uh, personal income and savings that have been built in the U.S., if that is, you know, effectively unleashed, um, you know, in a concentrated amount of time, then then you, you could potentially see that. But, for now, I mean, people had the same concern during 2008, right? It's the same concern that people had when the ECB went into quantitative easing, um, that there would be massive inflation. And until you have, you know, demand actually bidding up prices, um, it's, it's, it's hard to expect that. And certainly for now, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case. And even as employment numbers get down, um, you know, wage uh, inflation is still strongly negative uh, across the world, not just the U.S., and so uh, it's hard to see a case where, you know, sort of this inflationary sort of spiral. Um, sorry to uh, hop out, but I, I do have to hop out. Thank you for everybody. Thank you to everyone. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I actually was going to, uh, Solomon uh, jumped uh, in and basically said very much what I was going to say, which is I look at the secular uh, trends in inflation and the two, there were three things that were suppressing inflation for 20 years. Um, uh, you had globalization and that's kind of off the table. But the other two were uh, demographics and technology advancement, both of which are highly disinflationary. Um, and the in the U.S., those two secular trends at least are continuing. So while there is that risk um, of kind of an unleashing of economic activity next year, uh, inflation right now is limited to certain asset classes. Um, obviously, it's <laughs> uh, real estate deflation in San Francisco and New York, real estate inflation, Park City and Vail. But um, there is a um, overall, if you take the economy in general, uh, the Phillips curve is kind of a dead, 
at issue at this point. It really hasn't worked uh, since 2010. Uh, and I get there's a running joke inside UBS that, you know, you want to have McLaughlin's head go right off his shoulders. It's when you start talking about the Phillips curve as a um, as a driver of inflation. Uh, it's just it's it's not working and it probably won't work uh, until we get past this technological advancement era that we're in right now. So it's 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 a few years away. Other questions? I, I, we added another 15 minutes uh, leeways. We're hoping to have a result by now, but uh, <laughs> not yet. Yep, yep. I have a question. Sure, Jonah. Hi. What do you? Uh, what is the general opinion of Kamala Harris? Because the reality is, it does not look like Biden has the mental faculties to survive four years. Yeah, I, I would worry that he looks frail. You know, he turns 78 in about two weeks. So, yeah, that's that's getting up there. I mean, she, the thing is, progressives don't like her. They say she's too conservative. Conservatives say she's too progressive. So it's a it's a mixed outlook. I would say this. She has very good contacts in Silicon Valley. They have funded her campaigns. She knows a lot of the big players in the tech industry. And I am not persuaded that this administration, the Biden administration, will go after tech companies. I, 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 I think had the Democrats taken the Senate, you'd have to worry about a big new minimum corporate tax that would have hurt the industry. But I, I don't see a, a, I don't see them really aggressively going after the industry. And I think her ties to Silicon Valley are are important. But I'd say on a lot of other issues, she's well to uh, she's well to Biden's left. And I would have to say that, you know, my odds would be close to 50-50 that at some point in the next four years, uh, she becomes president. I saw the note pop up on the screen about uh, Kamala Harris being a weather van. I think that's a pretty interesting analogy. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do agree that uh, her um, her campaign ability, if you will, or campaigning ability, she's a very good campaigning politician. Um I'm not as sure that she's got a world view that's really particularly pronounced. Yeah. Very effective campaigner. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, the weather vane's not probably, probably not a bad analogy. Yeah. Other questions, comments? Stephen Burke, I saw you go come off mute. Did you want to? Yeah, I, I did have a question. I'm sorry. If you thought uh, Biden would be able to more aggressively bring the two parties together, given his 47 years there? And is there a chance for a, uh, less divisiveness? I, I wish I could say yes, but I've been around for a long time, and probably Tom would agree with me that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, um, to envision the, some conciliation between the two parties. There, there's such polarization on so many issues. Uh, I, I do think Biden is a relatively moderate by Democratic standards, uh, but he's, you know, I don't think he and Mitch McConnell are going to go out dancing uh, anytime soon. Uh, and you, Tom mentioned uh, Tip O'Neill earlier in the call. You know, when I was a young man, I recall that Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would have a drink at the end of the day. They'd have a beer and they'd tell old jokes, Irish jokes. And you, you just don't get that kind of uh, mood right now in, in Congress. I think things are still too polarized. The final point I'd make 
is that the the, the center has really diminished. I mean, the, the, you don't see people anymore like M- McCain or Paul Paul Ryan or Jeff Flake or Bob Corker. Uh, if in fact, if you try to be a conciliator, you become a pariah in your own party. That's happened to uh, Susan Collins in Maine. So no, un- unfortunately, I don't see uh, kumbaya a- anytime soon in Washington. Yeah, I, 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 I'm obliged to agree with Greg. I, I, I may have a slightly up, not, not in terms of results, I confess, but uh, Biden and McConnell obviously served in the Senate for 24 years together, and, yep. and was, Biden was up on the Hill quite a bit as a VP. So I, I don't think there's any personal – Greg, you tell me otherwise, but I, I don't think there's any personal animosity at all between McConnell and Biden. Uh, I think they both inherently know how to cut a deal, but I think, to your point, they're going to be constrained about doing so. Yeah, I, I think they can cut deals. They're very, very talented legislators, and that's that's nothing to scoff at. It's it's not easy. It, look, it may look easy, but to cut deals, as Mnuchin and Pelosi found out, it, it's it's not all that easy. Uh, and I, I think they'll they'll get along. The issue will be Biden getting pulled to the left and McConnell getting pulled to the right. They have to answer to factions in their own party. Yeah. As a follow up to that, then, do you think either party? depending on the outcome of the next midterms, actually tries to move more aggressively to the center and away from the extremes? I doubt it. I, it's, I, I would love to see it, but I, I'm, I don't see you – know, you need some sort of an impetus uh, or an inflection point that would drive the, the parties to the center, and um, the scary prospect is that probably only happens through external threat. Uh, there's nothing internally, domestically that would drive it, I think. Yeah, I mean, the country's so polarized for much of this year, we, we had a, an intense political debate over masks, for God's sake. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to find issues where there's a lot of common ground. Thank you. Great insights. So can I ask a question? It's Duncan Riefler. Hi, Duncan. What, it, it sounds like then we're in a situation where, we're going to need a crisis to get a response. So what's the crisis? Something foreign policy wise, or is it a fiscal problem with the, with this, with these cities? Um, just trying to think about what, what will motivate some action in the next two years. We, you know, you, you started with the, uh, the fiscal crisis or, or the kind of military threat. I don't think it's going to be the fiscal crisis in the state and local governments. I mean, I think both parties have kind of staked, their, staked out their position. And the relative strength, financial strength of states and cities varies. Uh, obviously, Illinois and, and New Jersey are fiscal basket cases. But Tennessee, Idaho, Utah, I mean, they're fine. I mean, they'll take the money if the federal government gives them one. But the, the budgetary strain in, in half the states are actually completely manageable. Um, so I, I, I don't think they get they'll get something, perhaps I'll be curious to see what Greg says. I, I think they get something out of the next stimulus bill, but it's not going to be a lot. Um, so what drives us to the center? I Unfortunately, um, it's probably this is all speculation. It's it's really a, uh, an external geopolitical serious threat to the United States. Um, that's really the only thing at this point, uh, as depressing as that sounds, that probably unifies the country. I, I fully agree, and I would even add 
that after 9-11, you know, you had George W. Bush at the the site of the World Trade Center, you know, say, we'll make these people, we'll punish these people. Within months, we were right back at each other's throats. I mean, the country was very united September, October, November of, of that year. But then you know, we even on that, we, we began to see fissures. So, no, un- unfortunately, I, I don't I don't see, you know, it, it would be interesting to get a, a, a younger leader who would not be bombastic and would try to bring people together. But, you know, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Let me ask. Maybe there is a an economic issue that could rally uh, cannabis under in a Biden administration. Uh, how does that play out through a Republican Senate? Hmm. I think a lot of Republicans like McConnell just from a generational standpoint have an issue with it. You know, so I, I'm a red wine guy, so I'm not probably qualified to, uh, to answer the question. Well, I, I will, uh, I, I noticed that uh, we've got, I think, three more states uh, this week that approved recreational marijuana use and probably half a dozen that approved medicinal. So we're at a point now where there's more than half the states do permit medicinal use and probably 10 or 12. I should know this number because there's a report that we're going to publish in a week or two about this um, that now permit recreation. Um, so I, I think um, the way that the Obama administration handled it was they came out with a uh, an instructional letter, if you will, from justice to the U.S. attorneys effectively telling him not to prosecute unless you're in the process of trafficking. Um, and then that was reversed uh, by Attorney General Sessions uh, in the first year of the Trump administration. My guess is that they're not going to try to do anything federal legislation because they probably wouldn't get it through to Greg's point. But they'll just go ahead and take a very, very lax administrative approach to it. Uh, and that will inevitably, I think, increase the, you know, the degree of uh, recreational use in the company and, pardon me, in the country. And in five years, we'll be in a different place. And, and at that point, it probably does happen at some point in Washington. My prediction is this is something where you'd see a defection and it gets through the Senate. That's my one, one bold. Well, remember, Cory Gardner, though, is the big proponent inside the Republican caucus for that position, and he's gone now. So yeah, yeah. There'll be others. Not that I'm a, I'm a red wine guy, too, Greg. I'm just saying that. <laughs> right. So let, let me, at the risk of sounding hopelessly naive, I would say in the last year, or especially in the last year, there's been a significant attitudinal change on race. I think that's a really good story. I mean, it, it took the deaths of people like George Floyd to perhaps change opinions in this country. But I, I think the way the police act is will continue to evolve in a positive way. Uh, I think everyone agrees that the violence in Portland, Oregon, is inexcusable and has to be punished. But I, I think race relations in general as a generational issue in the country have improved in the last year or so. And I, I think that's a positive, obviously. Other questions?